Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. Welcome to Bite Into It. Tonight, I have Lily to my left and Joe to the right of me. Hello. Hello. Great to have you here. This evening, we turn our eyes to China, first to cryptocurrencies, then we'll broaden our lens and consider Chinese language media in Australia and hopefully maybe even a bit more. There's so much interesting stuff going on there in the tech world in China at the moment. How are you both this evening? Doing good. Happy to be here in the studio with you. Yes. Yeah, Going well. Nice to have a change of scenery. It's brilliant. Great to wave to Mon in person and um, just feel the post radiothon Triple R Lux vibes. It's gorgeous. Uh, in news this evening, Lily. Yeah. So first off, the first cab off the rank, uh, Tesla is turning its hand to beer brewing with the limited run Tesla Cybertruck Giga Beer being announced by Elon Musk in Berlin last weekend. Um, I think this is mostly a promo for the new Tesla plant that's opening in Berlin soon, but they, um, I, I'm kind of curious to know what this beer tastes like. It's not necessarily the most creative of connections, is it? We're going to Berlin. What do Berliners like? I know. In October. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's brew some beer. I don't know who they got to do this either, but um, the reason that it's – firstly, it's called the Giga Beer, which I am torn on whether I love that or hate that. Um, but secondly, it's also in this kind of weird Cybertruck shape. Do you remember the Cybertruck? The yes. How can we forget? <laughs> All it needed was a Gatling gun on the side, and it <laughs> could have come straight out of RoboCop. But it's this Cybertruck shaped type of polygonal bottle thing that it comes in. It, it, yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm kind of curious to hear from anybody who ends up there. All right, we're sending all the billiners there. We've got. Good old Chris Chinch over there. We can see how he's going and oh, uh, get him to report back. That would be amazing. Well, um, speaking of uh, billionaires, uh, Google um, uh, have said that on YouTube they will no longer allow climate change deniers to monetize their content. So no ads will be running on those videos, which is pretty good news as far as these things go. It's very interesting to see how they've narrowed in on climate change and uh, I'd, well, I'd love to hear where they stand on a whole range of other yeah, topics. There are plenty of other... Yeah, misinformation yeah. channels. Mm. Yeah. But it's a, it's a really good start and it sets a, a precedent. Do we know if this is the first area that they've done this in? I'm not sure, but they are doing it apparently by um, automated tools as well as human review. So It's an should... interesting um, new space because you know previously they've had hit lists of things that they just take down yeah which is great but um this is in a grayer area i guess and yeah. it'll be interesting to see if the automated tools accidentally catch um actual yeah content that, yeah <laughs> that people enjoy yeah yeah yeah, that's about right. Mm. Hey, in local news, identity and fraud prevention platform Frankie One have closed a 20 million Series A funding round for those who love keeping up with startup investment. So in the last 18 months, they have attracted 80 new clients, including Afterpay and Westpac. So it's nothing to be sneezed at. They've doubled their head count in the last three months as well, probably on the strength of acquiring those clients. And they have appointed a new COO, 
uh, Warren Oaks, ex McKinsey and Co. So they're they're starting to stack themselves up. Uh, expect to hear much more about Frankie One. That's kind of exciting to see uh, new companies growing in Victoria. Yeah, yeah very cool. Triple R. We're about to speak to somebody new. Cryptocurrencies expert and course director of Swinburne's Master of Fintech, Dr. Demetrios Salam Parsi, has been looking into the recently announced Chinese ban on cryptocurrencies, excluding the state-sanctioned digital yuan, of course. So tonight he joins us to discuss the context of this decision. Welcome, Dr. Salam Parsi. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for the kind invitation. Oh, it's been great to have you here. Do you mind if we call you Demetrios? Absolutely. Beautiful. Thank you. So, Demetrios, you've been researching this um, for most of the world. I think the ban on cryptocurrencies out of China felt like it came out of nowhere. Can you tell us a bit about you know, where you think this is coming from and maybe how long you think the issue has been brewing? Mm. Um, I don't really think this has been something totally new. Uh, I mean, uh, Beijing in the past had given some signals about um, banning a little bit on cryptocurrency trading and mining. Um, and I think with the, the current blanket uh, ban of all the cryptocurrency trading and mining is really, I think, um, uh, uh, giving a signal of a strategic and delicate geopolitical puzzle, if I can use this kind of word. Yes. And um, I think the reason behind this is the fact that China, as a global economy, wishes to create and also maybe regain trust by providing some sort of a disassociation of its, um, let's put it, authoritative uh, economy from uh, any transactions related to, um, you know, speculative and volatile assets such as cryptocurrencies. And, um, of course, because also China, we have to remember that um, they're working very actively in the issuance of their own central bank digital currency, the digital one, and they said they would announce it probably during the Winter Olympic Games. Um, they will probably want to clear a little bit the atmosphere and um, really disassociate the economy to, to, to sell this particular offering So uh, and make also the digital one as some sort of a global adoption and utilization vehicle to um, also give uh, less space to other sources of, of private um, digital assets such as cryptocurrencies and open source digital assets, so basically restricting their utilization. Dimitrios, can you tell us a bit more about the digital one specifically and how it differs from other kinds of cryptocurrencies that we've that we've seen today? Mm. Okay, so uh, the digital one, and I will I will open it up a little bit further into the central bank digital currencies. Central bank digital currencies uh, is basically going to be some sort of a response to, uh, if we can say that, into, to, to the digital assets and, and to the cryptocurrencies from central banks. So basically there will be the uh, digital representation of a fiat currency in some sort of form, either as a token or as an account base, that uh, it will be the, under the, the responsibility in the umbrella of a central bank. Therefore, we're going to be seeing, for example, the digital euro, the digital yuan, the digital Australian dollar, the digital dollar. Um, but these, are, these would be administered by, the, by central banks. So basically, what is going to happen, and they will be used, of course, as a, as a vehicle for payments. That's, that's the main, let's say, discussion that we're having that, that are at the moment going, going forward around the globe. And China has been at the, really at the forefront of trying to innovate in that space, um, which 
many see it as a rally, I see it more as an, an evolutionary transformation, uh, because there are also a lot of voices, I must admit, that they don't see CBDCs bringing anything new. They, they even think that this is, going to, this is going to make even things much more worse. So there has been a lot of faith in the, in the CBDCs from a financial inclusion point of view, from a more um, serious monetary and, and, um, and financial vehicle. It's, it's a matter of also seeing because not, currently almost 80 to 90 percent of central banks around the globe are experimenting with some sort of a CBDC which can be used for um, within a country, which can be used also for cross-border transactions. And then we get into different schemes around what kind of frameworks and what kind of technological uh, developments we need to we need around that. And um, with the, with the ban on cryptocurrencies as it stands, what happens to all of the folks in China who do have cryptocurrency holdings? How is that handled when when it's banned? As far as far as as far as I know, and basically as far as, as what I've been reading, that the, all basically exchanges and transactions they need to stop immediately. Now, what will happen? I guess people will have to start transacting outside of China, and um, I, I think this is what's going to happen. And also, as far as I as far as I don't I don't know yet if there is actually a, a timeline set for that. Um, on when do they actually have to stop? and seize all transactions, because, of course, you, you understand that this, this can't happen immediately. So I'm sure there has to be some sort of a, of a timeline, which I haven't actually read anywhere what would be the actual date for that. Mm. But um, my, my, my gut feeling and my research tells me that um, uh, I, I think what China really wants to do is they really want to, to, to market their own uh, CBDC and probably uh, also disassociate themselves from mining because China, let's not forget, has been one of the main mining hubs. And you know mining is, is sucking so much energy. And, and, it, and this is also creating a lot of carbon emissions. So there's mm. a lot of conversation around yeah. the environmental impact of mining. So part of this is, is, is a whole part of the discussion to show the economy, you know, as being responsible, as being uh, environmentally friendly, as being away from speculative assets. And, and opening up to more of a stability that a potential CBDC would bring. That's such an interesting point. We will re-pick up the climate angle of this decision in a moment. But I did wonder, you know, you mentioned so many countries have been investigating um, having their own uh, government-sanctioned digital currencies, but most of them have not banned other cryptocurrencies. Mm. So where um, we see the Chinese move here, is it about having transparency over really the range of financial assets of their citizens? I think so. I think so. But again, um, we have also to remember that, that, that the Chinese economy is very centrally controlled. So, And that centralization is completely the opposite compared to what decentralization in the crypto, in the crypto asset space is all about. Therefore, we always see that philosophical conundrum of clashing between mm -hmm. people who are um, against anything centralized to people and companies which are against anything decentralized. And of course, decentralization is, is something very new and we're not calibrated for, for, for such as a decentralized um, financial provision. Therefore, I think that creates both room for innovation, but at the same time creates a lot of fear because let's not forget that many of these decentralized vehicles and decentralized mechanisms are not yet fully regulated. Therefore, mm -hmm. there is a, this dark side of where, in what kind of regulatory regimes and regulatory uh, provisions do they fit? 
And there have been jurisdictions around the globe that have been more permissive, others that have been less permissive, others that have actually banned completely. Um, and it's a matter of innovation. It's a matter of seeing how all this, where, where will all this go? And this is why I used at the beginning the word geopolitical puzzle, because let's not forget that all these go against a centralized art architecture and, yes. and, and, and scheme. And what the CB, the, the, what central banks want to do, they want to protect the fiat currencies to make them remain as the needed um, vehicle for transactions. So, Dimitrios, you touched on the um, the extra pressures to you know reduce emissions and the high energy cost of, mm. of mining cryptocurrencies if they use that sort of model. Um, how far have people gotten worldwide in terms of standardizing how to measure the impact of those sort of mining operations? Yeah, uh, there have been, there have been uh, quite a few studies uh, that ha have actually looked into this. Uh, and again, all these all this are just new data. Therefore, you can't really have a, a coherent and cohesive view. However, th there has been uh, a few studies as, uh, that I am aware of that they have measured the impact of, of mining, particularly, uh, which, is, which is massive. Therefore, this is why uh, there are a lot of um, cryptocurrencies at the moment that they use alternative means beyond the proof of work, which is the, which, which is the, 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 the algorithm, the uh, consensus algorithm that um, Bitcoin is using to find new ways that are more environmentally friendly and also uh, are, are also faster because part of this, the, 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 the excessive usage of computing power is, is creating also lots of issues in terms of the scalability of the system itself. Uh, but definitely uh, some research have shown that there is a lot of issues in relation to uh, the impact that um, mining has. And you, we see also because also uh, electricity is quite expensive, we see also some hubs that really uh, centralize uh, hashing and mining power. Therefore, that creates also some sort of a, of a decentralization in the way, in the way hashing power and, and mining operates. So there are a lot of questions there that, that can be raised. Mm. How influential do you think China's decisions in this policy area mm. are globally? I mean, look, China is a global economy. Uh, they want to position themselves as one of the leading economies in the world. Uh, definitely, uh, the decision cannot be ignored. Now, uh, we, we, we always, of course, have to remember the reasons behind that. And I believe that, personally, I believe that the main reason is, is they want to be ready to showcase the innovation behind their um, own CBDC. Um, now, do other economies... Um, uh, follow. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there are there are other economies that could follow, the, but it's always, you know, all, all this is part of a global experiment around mm -hmm. how do we actually integrate cryptocurrencies and crypto assets in general and decentralized finance in general into, into our economy, into our lives. And all of this is, is just a global experiment. And we see, for example, very recently that El Salvador adopted Bitcoin as a as, as, um, as a legal tender, this is also a great experiment, which for many, they consider it as something which is, has no value. Other, other things, it just has a great value. Uh, therefore, you've got these divergent and convergent views, uh, and it's a, matter, it's a matter of seeing where all this is going to go. But 
I have to also to tell you that it also depends the lens on which you actually see that. If you see it from an economic perspective, on a monetary perspective, on a technological perspective, on an innovation perspective, on a, on a political perspective, uh, you, you will get different answers. Well, that's, um, that's actually something that I wanted to ask you about. I know we've spoken a lot about this from the political perspective, but what's the reaction been to this announcement inside of the cryptocurrency communities around the world? How are people receiving this news? Mm. Uh, look, I mean, lots of people think that that lots of people thought that because um, because of this uh, of this decision, of the, the whole market would would go down. I, I haven't seen this happening, but also we have to remember that the overall um, crypto assets or cryptocurrency space is very volatile. Therefore, um, you you, ne- you never know how how it will react, and this is a part of the reason why being such a volatile mechanism, uh, which is primarily based on supply and demand, you can't really, let's take the example of Bitcoin, you can't really use it as a, as a means of payment as, as a, or, or as a unit of account because of this particular volatility. Now, again, it depends on the lens, but I think that uh, we, we probably have to, we're probably going to go into some sort of a, a reality where uh, multiple means of, um, of, of payments or, or transacting will, will, will remain. Now, do all the cryptocurrencies which are currently there will survive? My uh, personal view is no. I think we're going to be seeing a lot, of, a lot of clearance out there. Now, what happens if we get, you know, the, the CBDCs uh, adopted from, from, from different countries compared to stable coins or to, um, or to the native cryptocurrencies will, is a matter of existing existence or non-existence um, to be seen. But I don't think that one basically excludes the other. I think it, it potentially will lead to some sort of a democratization around multiple o- options. It's very interesting um, I guess we are all wondering, you know, how much people from other nations will access a particular mm. nation's um, own government-branded cryptocurrencies and what sort of things merchants will do to incentivize people to pay via exactly. Those, exactly. those formats. Exactly. And if I may add one last point, uh, because you, you, you mentioned before around the, the, um, the environmental aspect, I just remember I was reading somewhere that China itself back in April had... 46% share of the global hash rate, which is actually the measure of the computing power used in mining and processing. And that, um, mm. I, was, uh, I, I think it, it comes from the Cambridge Bitcoin Electricity Consumption Index. So imagine the concentration of, of, of mining simply in one country. That's a really helpful figure to have. And um, what was that index, the Cambridge? Uh, Cambridge Bitcoin Electricity Consumption Index. Amazing. That's really helpful. Yeah. You, you Sorry, it just, it, I just remember it. <laughs> that's really handy. No, that's great. It's great to have a benchmark there that we can, you know, go back to yeah. and understand how things and are changing. And now all this is out, basically. And also, as I was reading somewhere that a lot of companies that actually supply all this mining equipment, they cannot do, they cannot do business anymore in China. Yes. That will be a tremendous impact. Yes. So you mentioned with the CBDCs, um, perhaps part of China's effort here is also to showcase their innovation in the space. When you say that, what sort of proof points, what sort of benefits would they want to be showing off? Mm. Well, first of all, from an economy point of view, they may want to show that they are... um, they, they, they are a country of stability. They are a country that has a controlled uh, monetary policy and, and, um, 
and, and, and also we need to consider also CBDCs from a national sovereignty point of view, because remember, a fiat currency is also um, coated around the pride of a country. Mm. Therefore, uh, and you, we have also the currencies, for example, the U.S. dollar, that is, that is the main currency in terms of global trading. So will actually the Americans allow the Chinese to have a, pre- a prevailing CBDC for cross-border transactions or for, or for settlement for payments? You, you see where I'm going? It opens up really new horizons around how do we conceptualize monetary policy? How do we, con- we conceptualize and recontextualize global economics and global businesses? So I think it opens a lot of questions uh, which go beyond, I would say, the technological innovation point of view, because also from a, from a technological standpoint, it's, it's, it's really, really confusing. I mean, th- th- there are many banks that actually uh, think that blockchain or some sort of a DLT would be, would be, uh, would be the, 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 the infrastructure behind this. Other, others say that no blockchain or, or a permissionless system wouldn't work. It has to be through a permission system. Uh, you know, all these technological infrastructures are part of the, of the, of the uh, discussion. But I think the bigger discussion is what actually this CBDC would work with and also what will be its position within the global economy. Because don't forget, we live in a global economy, yes. we not just live in a, in a national yeah. economy. Yes, absolutely. Um, you mentioned a little earlier about the um, beyond uh, cryptocurrencies beyond proof of work and that kind mm. of thing. What does that look like? What could that look like? What's being experimented with at the moment? Yes. Look, there, there are a number of... Uh, so j- just to give you a little bit of a context here, uh, because we're looking into a decentralized uh, system, so uh, a, distribu- a, a blockchain, which is a form of a distributed ledger, basically the network depends on computers, which are called nodes, that can exist anywhere in the world. So basically, there is no central entity that would ensure trust of a transaction. In order then to have processing of transactions, all these different computers out there that don't know one another, they have to find an agreement. They have to have a common consensus. That's that's what is called consensus. So different networks use different consensus algorithms. The Bitcoin, which was the first, they used the proof of work, which is actually is based on the mining protocol. Therefore, you use massive computing power, and that computing power, which which leads to a solution of a very very complex mathematical problem, the computational power basically creates trust and at the same time creates revenue for the miners. Now, of course, as I said, this is slow. This is very complicated, and it's also very costly in terms of the energy, in terms of the, of the equipment that is required, and of course in terms of the impact that it has in the environment. Now, there are other, um, other networks such as the Ethereum, which are now going into the proof-of-stake consensus algorithm, uh, which is based into, into a monetary system around the wealth of a number of, 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 um, of, of nodes to, 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 work, to work within the system. There are a lot of technicalities behind. Uh, there are also other systems which use a delegated proof of stake, which is more of a voting system. There are others that use a proof of authority or proof of elapsed time. There, there are multiple consensus algorithms out there, and there is a lot of innovation from a technical point of view, because remember that behind all this, there's a lot of technicalities, there's a lot of computer science, there's a lot of mathematics, which they want to a certain extent detach from a proof of work because of, of course, of the speed, the electricity, but also the environmental impact that, it, that all of these have. Yes, that is, um, I think you've summed that up beautifully. 
I'm feeling quite envious of your students. Uh, we have been speaking with cryptocurrencies expert, as you can hear, and course director of Swinburne's Master of Fintech, Dr. Dimitrios Salampasi. Dimitrios, where can people find out more about what you're doing other than by studying in your classes at Swinburne? Uh, they can connect with me on LinkedIn. They can look at me on the webpage of Swinburne University. Beautiful. I also have my own webpage. But um, may, may I just say that, that blockchain and cryptocurrencies is part of my work. Yes. My main work is around innovation and entrepreneurship in financial services. So I'm very much interested in how the, all these emerging technologies from artificial intelligence to blockchain to quantum computing, how do they create new businesses, but also how do they change the social, the environmental, and the and the overall innovation and venturing in the financial services space. Thank you for that. Look, it's um, it's very challenging to have uh, clear discussions around all of the emerging changes in this space, and you've done it beautifully. Thanks so much for being our guest this evening. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Triple R on FM, digital, online, on demand, podcasts, and via the app. Fun Young is a PhD candidate with the School of Communication and Creative Arts at Deakin University. Her doctoral thesis looked at how the Chinese community in Australia uses WeChat as a news production and circulation platform. She also works on the effects of Chinese internet governance in Australia and Chinese language internet culture in the digital native generation. Tonight, we are talking with her about these topics and more. Welcome to Byte. Hey, Fan. Can you hear us? Hey. hey. Yeah, yeah, sure. Hey, really um, good to hear from you. Well, it's, um, it's always a pleasure to see such a, a fleshed out um, bio before someone's even um, completed their PhD. So it's great to have you here. As you may have heard, we are having a bit of a focus on China this evening. And so, yeah, we're very interested in in far-ranging thoughts and experiences with Chinese tech. But let's begin with the report you did for the Lowy Institute. Um, You looked into three specific Chinese language media outlets, um, presumably publishing in Australia? Is that that right? Uh, Yes, that is correct. So basically the three Chinese um, language media organizations that I particularly looked into are Daily Chinese Herald, established by a Taiwanese entrepreneur called um, Huang Fengyu, and Australian Chinese Daily, established by um, Mei Ling Lau. Um, She was a Hong Kongese Australia and also Media Today, which is a digitally native media organization. It's pretty much younger generation digitally native media organization established by Chen um from mainland China. So I looked into this very specific Chinese language media outlets in Australia because they are they have different ownerships. And I wanted to know, I wanted to understand in my report how this three Chinese um, language media organizations, they translate the idea of tension between Austria and China um, in 2020. It's such an interesting topic. I mean, even uh, people with a very loose understanding of what's happening with Chinese politics understand the constraints of uh, freedom of press in mainland China and increasingly in Hong Kong. So we'd already have some questions around um, the sort of independence that uh, Chinese language publishers might feel um, being liberated from that uh, geography. 
what did you start to find when you when you looked at how they talked about um, how they, I guess, interrogated that idea of tension between you know being published in Australia but being, um, I guess, Chinese centric. Um, well, it's, it's it's quite interesting because well, those three media organisations they are all established in Australia and. The, most of their operations is conducted in Australia, um, where some um, some quite resourceful media organisations like Daily Times Herald and also Media Today they outsource the translation labour to mainland China, and Daily and Media Today because this media organisation is quite new, younger generation, and they established on um, they established on Weibo first, and which is the Chinese version of Twitter. Um, and then they extended their business to um, online website and then on WeChat. So they registered their business in both China and Australia. So in this report, I collected more than 500 articles portraying the Australian-China relation during 2020. And also I conducted five interviews with senior-level media professionals within those organizations in order to gain the insights, not just on the media representation of the tension, but also I wanted to know how and why they represented the tension in the particular way and how their daily media practices and also the industry's internal operation underpin this kind of media representation. Mm. So one of the most interesting findings that I discovered in my report was that, to my surprise, um, Chinese language media outlets in Australia, they are more likely to support Australian government policy than Chinese government policy, especially when reporting on tensions in the Australian-China relationship, but in their coverage. So they also tend to editorialize to soften or remove um, critical perspectives or criticisms of China and the Chinese government. So the reason behind this kind of self-censorship or what we would call content moderation as well is in part because Chinese language media outlets in Australia produce very little original content, largely because of the very limited financial support, um, very limited financial resources and human resources. Instead, they translate and reproduce news stories from Australian dominant English media. So this kind of uh, content translation is um, through my interview. Chinese language media professionals, they say that they prefer to republish Australian content instead of um, relocating Chinese, um, relocating media content from China because this will help Chinese migrants better integrate into the so-called Australian dominant society. And this kind of translation does not um, primarily emphasize the idea of accuracy or accurate exchange of information. Editorialization, dramatization, and also sensationalization are often involved in the process of translation. So this kind of sensationalization can be even more severe when it comes to the publications on WeChat to attract users' attention. However, self-censorship is also embedded in this kind of media organization's editorial processes. This is partly because uh, this is 
particularly the case for Chinese language media outlets whose content is distributed to mainland China via digital platforms like news websites, news apps, and also WeChat or Weibo, when politically sensitive content would just simply be blocked by the Great Firewall in China. So um, outlays self-censor out of the concern for the loss of market because if the content is not able to reach the mainland China market, they just lost the traffic over there. And if they lose their traffic from mainland China, they won't be able to get um, many advertising opportunities or financial sponsorship from their advertisers. And also another concern would be if they constantly publish politically sensitive um, topics from their media organizations, they might, that might impose risk or threat on their staff members or the family, the families of their staff members. Despite, yeah. It is despite the fact that many of the staff members are permanent residents in, um, in Australia or they might be Australian citizens. So um, with, uh, with regard to the information or the, the articles that are produced in Australia for a Chinese language audience, do you, have you found any um, – do they get traction inside mainland China as well? Is there that sort of information exchange of news going back the other way from uh, Australian sources? Well, the target market is due Chinese migrant communities in Australia, but mm. also because there's, um, there's content also published on WeChat, um, WeChat official accounts, which is the kind of information broadcasting function on WeChat. It's kind of like Facebook's homepage, and the information is yeah. completely public. Um, so I'm just going to give a little bit of explanation um, of WeChat official accounts, just in case many um, audience they might not be aware of what the function was like. So WeChat official account is kind of like Facebook homepage, and once a, um, a WeChat user they subscribe to the account, they will be able to receive the daily update of a particular account. And one WeChat official account, they should be able to publish up to eight articles per day. So those WeChat official accounts established in Australia, but are also registered in mainland China. Right. Because of the um, very, because of the very nature of the internet, um, of how Chinese internet governance works. So, in order to reach the um, broader market in mainland China, well, by mainland China, I mostly mean that um, those WeChat users who register their WeChat account initially with their Chinese mobile phone numbers. So in order to reach this broader market, um, those WeChat official accounts in Australia, they have to register their accounts, register their business in China, or they have to, well, they, or if they don't do that, if they don't have a Chinese office, or if they don't have a business established in China, they will need to um well, Tencent, the parent company of WeChat, they would allocate a company to the account. To the account. Um, so basically, the thing that 
In this way, the content can be broadly distributed to mainland China. And there's news focused WeChat official accounts in Australia. They are subscribed by not just Chinese migrant, um, not just by Chinese migrant communities, but also by people based in mainland China who are concerned about their relatives in Australia, their kids in Australia, their friends in Australia, or who might just be really interested in Australian education, real estate market, and immigration policies. It's so interesting you say that. Um, I know that there's another audience of these apps and, and a bunch of people who are reading um, Chinese language news um, potentially coming from Australian publishers on these apps. And that's people like my parents who have both independently decided to learn Cantonese. I'm, I'm half Chinese myself, uh, but my mother um, grew up speaking Hokkien dialect. And so, you know, um, oh, sorry, both of them um, are learning Mandarin, not Cantonese. My apologies. Misspoke. But, um, you know, so they, a great way for people like that to learn is hopping into the social media and taking in um, the sort of language that you use to cover the news. It is seen as a real bar of comprehension. So it, it's really interesting to hear you explain how those people actually go about getting accounts because they do it through their learning agencies. Um, yeah, well, yeah, and also like people tend to consume, especially Chinese migrant communities, they tend to consume news stories mm. from Chinese language media instead of, uh, for example, um, ABC's Chinese channels or SBS Chinese channels or, um, for example, the Australian, they have Chinese channel as yes. well. And on the Australian, they have WeChat official accounts. Yeah. Because, not just because linguistic familiarity, it's also because when there's young migrants, especially Chinese international students or younger generation skilled immigrants, when they initially came to Australia and when they read those news on Australia, they got, they got shocked. They were surprised. And they told me, my research participants, they told me that we were surprised by how critical Australian English media represent China and mm, Chinese people. Mm-hmm. So that is the huge disconnection between how Chinese state media represent themselves and also how Australian dominant English media tend to obtain such a critical perspective yes. that it's against Chinese migrant community. So Chinese language media, through translation, they properly feel into this kind of market void. Yeah. I think there's quite a few surprises in what your research has shown that would confound the expectations of the average Aussie about maybe the sort of biases that they would expect to see in that coverage. And it's really interesting to see how complicated those relationships are Um, As a slight side issue, we know that other social media, like massive Western social media companies like Facebook, particularly at the moment, um, are under increasing scrutiny for how they sensationalise news to increase engagement. Um, Is there a similar conversation going on um, around Weibo and WeChat? Yes. So um, basically, um, I I probably have... um, 100k words on how the phenomenon works on social media and how platform they tend to take over traditional journalism and also the um, it's very well established uh, media aspects. But anyways, um, on WeChat, I tend to call it the word business. So that is the business model of any kind of media organizations established on platforms, right? Like there's digitally dependent media organizations or there's digitally native media organizations. 
So digitally dependent media organization could be um, previously traditional um, legacy media organizations, and then they figured that platform gained traffic, platform gained advertising opportunities, and then they tend to relocate their business or relocate their publication on platforms. Whereas digitally native media organizations, um, for example, what my research look at media today, they established their platform, they established their business on WeChat initially because WeChat is a lucrative market and the traffic that they gained can be converted into cash. So that is a really simple kind of business model which I call um, converting traffic to cash. So the amount of traffic, well, attention is... Um, manifested in the form of traffic and traffic is quantitatively mm. evaluated mm. in the form of the amount of um, comments, the amount of views, the amount of likes, the, the amount of shares, the amount of subscribers. So these are just numbers, right? It's a game of numbers yeah. or the numbers games, right? So we don't really care about the quality of the content and we don't really care about the intel or media ethics, but we care about how dramatic, how clickbaity or headlines would be so that our users can just simply click through the headline URL and contribute to the traffic. Mm. And can we also presume that um, the uh, the audiences of these particularly huge social media platforms in China are similar to Facebook in the sense that they're, they're representing a more um, aged part of the population? Um, well, it depends. Um, it depends on the demographic feature, demographic position or market positionality of each account, right? Okay. Because some of the news focused which are official accounts that I look into, they're predominantly the target market is predominantly younger generation skilled immigrants mm -hmm. and or Chinese international students. But also I have um, a news focused which are official accounts that well that is that that, that that is a Chinese language media organization. Chinese well, there was a Chinese language newspaper actually, and they were really hesitant to get on WeChat to mm -hmm. get on platform because they were like, okay, it's just a game of those international students who <laughs> cannot find a job in yeah. Australia, and then suddenly one day they find that, okay, we can monetize our hobby, yeah. and then they started establishing their business. So you see, that is a hierarchy between Chinese language newspaper who are which is now dependent on WeChat and the digitally native media organizations on WeChat. And some of the um, Chinese language newspapers, news, they, they are really hesitant. They were really hesitant to engage in this game of numbers or the number games because they said that our audience or readers do not like those clickbait or readers do not like um, those sensationalized headlines and they're quite old. And also we have an office. For many digitally native media organizations, they don't have an office or they don't even use the office. Everything is communicated on WeChat. Yeah. But for those Chinese language newspapers, they have an office and they said that if our reader doesn't like our content, they'll just come to our office and complain to us. <laughs> but if, there's, um, if the readers from, if we're subscribers from a digitally native media organization, they do not have, uh, they do not like the content, 
they had nowhere to complain. They, they could probably leave a comment to the account, to the article, but the thing that a comment get directly sent to the back-end interface of WeChat, and the account operator decides whether to release the content or not. <laughs> nice. Nice. Good to see that there's certain um, media publishing on social media issues that are the same wherever you are in the world, <laughs> same challenges. Um, Fun. if there's one brief, um, you know, finding or, you know, sort of surprise thing or, or sort of insight that you had after doing this research, what do you think was most significant about it? I think the most significant about this is um, where... I well, I'm trained from the back. I'm trained um, from the background of sociology and social work, and then media and communication studies. So, but this research is this report um, with Lori. It's mu- it's more you know um, focused on international relations and how media repre- um, represents international um, international tensions. Mm. Well, I think at one point, or I would like to raise it that. Quality journalism needs support. So this kind of support or this kind um, this kind of support is not just limited to financial level. It's also limited to recognition. Chinese language media are consumed by um, 1.2 million Chinese migrants in Australia, and 60% of them consume news regularly from WeChat, despite the fact that WeChat can, well, there is news focused WeChat official accounts can publish disinformation, misinformation, or fake news. But those WeChat official accounts are probably the primary news source for many Chinese immigrants here. So those media, they need support. And this support does not just mean financial support. They need recognition from the mainstream society as well. With this kind of recognition, they'll be able to get access to the authority, um, for example, the information provided by authorities, information um, from conference, press conference, etc. In that way, they'll be able to get first-hand news stories instead of translating news stories from Australian dominant English media. Thank you. We couldn't agree with you more on the importance of um, independence media, uh, independent media and paying your journalists properly and, mm-hmm. and all those sorts of um, wonderful principles. Fan Young, thank you so much for speaking with us this evening. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. We'll definitely tap you in the future. We've got lots of other things we'd love to hear about, like oh, China's yeah. GDPR. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Good night. Um, It's 7.57 on Triple R for the last little bit of bite into it with Lily, Joe and Vanessa. Thanks for being with us. Um, We've we've travelled all the way to the Orient and uh, spent some time with China this evening. Uh, Now to to ground ourselves in some local events. Lily, what's happening in Victoria? Um, So next – oh, October – October, Tomorrow. Yeah, no, October 14th is um, International E-Waste Day. So this means that uh, well, because all of the game consoles, everything else that people have been buying up while being locked in their homes during COVID has piled up and, you know, maybe you, you got a console and you don't use it anymore. Anyway, um, it means that we are going to be able to go and recycle some of that stuff, be more aware of what we've got out there and um, how we, how we can uh, – 
put it back into the system, reuse a lot of those resources that have gone into creating a lot of these uh, devices that we've accumulated. Yeah, it's nice when we can have that circular economy effect of some of our goods um, rather than just consuming, consuming. Um, if you do want to find a place to recycle some of your e-goods, do check out techcollect.com.au. They're a not-for-profit and they meet the federal guidelines on how we should deal with all this stuff. Hey, thank you so much to our guests this evening, Dr. Demetrios Salampasis and Fan Yang, um, both very illuminating on um, Chinese cryptocurrencies and Chinese language media in Australia. Thanks to my hosts, Joe and Lily, tonight. Joe, always putting such care into your music selection. Really appreciate that. I really appreciated Lily's music selection this evening too. Oh, nice, nice. <laughs> You're welcome, yeah. Collaborative efforts in here. There's, it's a love fest because we're in studio and we're really happy with ourselves. Big thanks to our talks producer, Elizabeth McCarthy, invaluable uh, contributions. We've been biting to it. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or bite into its Twitter or Facebook accounts.